Welcome to the Sermon Podcast for Canton Church, a campus of Mount Perrin North. We exist to help people live a Christ-centered life, and we hope that you are encouraged by today's message. Good morning, friends. Go ahead and open your Bibles with me, please, to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, if you want to pull it up on your smartphone, you can do that as well, but that's where we're going to be hanging out this morning. And as you do that, I just want to tell you a quick story about a woman named Jenny Lawson. Jenny Lawson is from Texas. She's become uh, quite a famous writer recently. She has a famous blog entitled The Blogess, or The Blogess. I don't know how you pronounce it precisely, but it's uh, a blog that essentially emerges from her experience as a mom and as a wife, but it's very sarcastic and straightforward and even irreverent at moments, but that honesty has gotten her a large followership on the blog. She's also very candid in it about her experience with things like depression and anxiety, and part of that kind of honesty has gained her a lot of readership. In fact, she was listed by Forbes magazine as one of the top 100 uh, blogs for women or for moms. Um, She's become a very popular writer. But just a few years ago, about 2012, she came out with her autobiography entitled Let's Pretend This Never Happened. And that biography reached the number one spot on the New York Times bestseller list. A couple years later, she came out with a book, an honest and humorous memoir of her experience with depression and anxiety and OCD called Furiously Happy, or Furiously Unhappy, I can't remember the name of it. One of those two. But that reached the number three spot on the New York Times bestseller list. And it was last year she was on a tour for that book, like an extended tour, flights here and there and everywhere. She was at the airport, and she tweeted something about her experience there that uh, kind of went out to all the thousands of followers that she has that was actually quite humorous. And this is what she said, airport cashier, have a safe flight, me, you too. I can never come here again. Anybody had that experience, right? Enjoy your movie, you too, right? <laughs> or enjoy your food, yeah, you too. So she, was, she had this humiliating moment. She was really embarrassed about it, and she tweeted it. Well, she got on the flight flew to the next destination and got into the hotel room. And there was thousands upon thousands of tweets of like of sympathy and their own embarrassing moments that they had replied back to her that she was laughing so hard in her hotel room that people in the room next to her thought that she was, having, she was dying in some kind of pain. So they called the hotel security and had them come to her to see if she was all right. She enters the door with just tears running down her face. She's like, I promise this is what I look like when I'm happy. But just to give you a taste for the humiliating moments that were replied back to her after she shared her own. This is Angela Bassa said, I texted my boss at the end of my first day in the new job with heading out, love you, intended for my boyfriend. <laughs> wrong texts are horrendous, aren't they? Anybody ever had a wrong text in the room? It's just you, the shame that covers your face. I have a friend that for whatever reason, the way his, we text a lot, but he always sends me his, what he intends for his wife. So it's like, when are you going to pick up the kids? I'm like, I'm not picking up your kids. It's all these weird things. So that's what Angela said. This one's harder to read, but it's a good one. I got an interview for a job I really wanted, walked in, held out my hand and said, hi, I'm Marsha. My name is not Marsha. <laughs> my, my brother-in-law, he's, his name's Jared. He lives in Nashville. He, for six months, he worked for a, uh, he interned for a company in, in a field that he really was interested in working for, and his boss introduced him to the entire staff as Jacob. 
And so for the entire internship, he was known as Jacob. But then it came out that his name was Jared, too. And so he, they're like, so what is your name? He's like, oh, my name is Jacob Jared. <laughs> Jared's my middle name. <laughs> anyway, so just humiliating. What do you do in that moment after you've introduced yourself? All right, so this is what H. Kel says. She says, I walked up to a baby-holding stranger thinking it was my sister at my daughter's soccer game and said, give me the baby. <laughs> Everybody's afraid of bringing their children in public for a reason. A couple more. This person said, I was once thanked by a grieving family member for coming to the funeral. I responded, no, thank you. There's something about funerals that are grieving moments that are just teed up to be awkward. We don't know what to say in the exchange of sympathies. It's hard. Amanda says, I got into the passenger seat of the wrong car outside Starbucks. The driver waited until I finished my phone call to tell me. <laughs> And this is my favorite. I bought Preparation H for under eye bags, told the clerk she didn't need to bag it because I was going to use it in the car. <laughs> That's a bad day, y'all. I haven't had that one, but I've had some embarrassing moments. We've all had, anybody can relate to these tweets, right? Moments in your life just humiliated. And I've had so many. It's a wonder that I am a fully functioning adult. I mean, my wife can attest. I'll be sitting in the living room be quiet, we're just watching TV, reading a book, and all of a sudden I'll just put my head in my hands, or I'll say some gibberish phrase as a means of trying to get out the shame of just a, a bad memory that's come to my mind, constantly filled with humiliating moments, saying things we shouldn't say, being in places we shouldn't be in. And it's a wonder, in light of all these humiliating moments, where we're constantly reminded of our humanity, we're constantly reminded of how we don't have our lives together, that at the same time we struggle with this thing called pride, with this arrogance that bubbles up within us, you'd think that these humiliating moments would do exactly what the word implies, keep us humble. The humble comes from the Latin word humus, which means ground, keep us down to the ground, keep us grounded. But in reality, pride is a struggle that many of us deal with in our day-to-day -day walks. And today we're continuing in our series entitled, Things We Wish Jesus Didn't Say. And this is week two, and we're going to look at specifically the verse... In chapter 14, where Jesus says, Therefore, whoever exalts themselves will be humbled. Whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. Now, this is a kind of very straightforward proverb that seems to be simple. and seems to be something that's graspable and doable. But it is something that I know I wish Jesus had not said. Because that implies that um, if I am exalting myself and that I'm going to be cut down at one moment, God's going to bring me down. And if I, am, if I somehow deny myself that that's where true life is found, I think that many of us understand Christianity, and, and rightly so, it's been packaged this way. We understand Christianity as this kind of spiritualized version of the Disney promise, when you wish upon a star, your dreams come true. That Jesus is there as I follow him to ensure that my life is on the constant ascent constant progress, that as I follow Jesus, I see increase in my job position, in my title, in my authority. I see increase in my income. I see increase in the square footage of my home. I see increase in the happiness and health of my family. I see increase in my talent. And my Jesus is there to kind of help me move upward. But Jesus, in this statement, says that if you're a follower of me, that stuff may happen, but that's not where you truly are. Instead, you're constantly one of moving lower still. You're one of constant self-denial, self-annihilation, self-abnegation, one who constantly gets lower and lower to the ground and finds that in that low place, that's where the friendship of God is found. That's where true ascent 
is found. It's found not in the progress. Progress is good, and we can use all that, and God can give us that, but it's ultimately found in the cross, in the taking up that cross and dying to ourselves. That humility is what Christ has called us to. Humility is the most important virtue of the Christian life. It's a sober perception of myself, and it's stating that I am helplessly dependent upon God for everything that I have. We could say that humility is the kind of soil for which all other virtues grow out. I can't be a loving individual, joyful, patient, any of that, unless I have a sober perception of who I am in relationship with God. So we're going to talk about humility today. We're in Luke chapter 14. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn over there, as I've already told you. But can we stand for the gospel reading this morning in honor of the reading of God's Word? We're going to read quite a bit of text. We're going to read 14 verses. I believe in your feet they can make it. But this is what what, uh, Luke tells us in starting verse 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. Then he asked them, If one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast... Do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this man your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back so that you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Can you say amen to God's word? Go ahead and have a seat. So, based on this kind of text naturally unfolds in three moments. So I want to look at what humility looks like as it's refracted through these three moments. Three basic points. The first that we see is that humility begins with a transformed vision of those around me. Humility begins with a transformed vision of those around me. Look at verse 1. One Sabbath when Jesus was in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he's been invited there for a meal. Now, We know Jesus often went to Pharisees' homes throughout his ministerial career. And in the Gospel of Luke, he's already eaten in the home of a Pharisee up to this point. But something's changed since that original visit to the Pharisee's house. See, we learn at the end of chapter 11, I think it is, that the Pharisees now are vehemently opposed to Jesus. They're constantly concerned with finding a way to trap him, to make sure that they can seize him, arrest him. He's a threat to their authority, a threat to their power. And so this is an odd moment that Jesus is even in the home of a Pharisee eating a meal, especially because we know that meals in the ancient world were not as informal as meals often are now. When we go to meals, we just kind of eat with who we want to and sit where we want to. But in the ancient world, meals were especially important. They were almost ceremonial. Their purpose 
was to reaffirm the social hierarchy of the society. That is, that one only ate with people whom one wanted to be affiliated with on that social level. Does that make sense? So middle class people ate with middle class people, lower class people ate with lower class people, the elite ate with the elite. And if I'm one who's concerned constantly with my social status, I only eat with people on my level or people who are above my level so that I can attain that elite status. So Jesus is obviously considered one who is on par with the highest leaders of Jewish authority because he's been invited into a Pharisee's home but we notice that he's being carefully watched, Luke tells us. But there's a detail here that is stunning, that there in the room, among all these distinguished professors, if you will, the professors of Jewish law, pastors, high-ranking officials, there's a man suffering from dropsy. Now, I didn't know what dropsy meant. I had to look it up in the dictionary. But dropsy is is apparently a medical condition in which one retains fluid in one's body. So it causes great swelling in your legs, and in your feet. It's very painful, uncomfortable. But in the ancient world, it was associated with sinfulness and with greed, especially. They used the the concept of dropsy to talk about those that starved for money, just as a dropsy person, they assumed, was constantly thirsty and couldn't be satisfied. So one was, so greed worked in the same way, that one was constantly wanting money and never having enough of it. So this man is not just sick and suffering, but he's associated with sinfulness and associated with greed. And the way that Luke puts it in the Greek is especially poignant. He says it's not just that there was a man in the house suffering from dropsy. In, in, the, in the Gospels, it's a Greek word, do, which means look. So Luke is directing our attention to what Jesus sees. In his writing of the Gospel, we get the eyes of Jesus in the text. He says, look, in this house is a man suffering from dropsy. Now, this is unheard of because he's going to make the meal ceremonially unclean that they would invite him there is apparently only to trap him to see what Jesus is going to do to see if he heals on the Sabbath. So Jesus notices the man that everyone else notices is there but doesn't want there. Jesus notices him. We have the eyes of Jesus in this moment. And then Jesus asks the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Isn't that Jesus? Jesus is just going to address the elephant in the room by asking every, I'm not just going to take this, take this guy off to the side and heal him over here in the corner. No, I'm just going to ask everybody here at the meal, is it lawful for me to heal this man or not? And then they remain silent. Their silence indicative of the fact that they are complicit in his suffering. And then it says this, so taking a hold of the man, the Greek word means to seize. It's the same word used for arrest throughout the gospel and in Acts. When Paul is arrested, they seize him. That same word. Jesus is a violent healing. He seizes him. He bear hugs the suffering one. He heals him and he sends him away. Isn't that amazing? Jesus could just have, bless you, son, in the name of, go in the name of God and you will be healed. But no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bear hug you in front of all these prominent officials who think you are unclean and heal you, and not just heal heal you, but restore you back to society. What is going on here? Jesus is disregarding all social customs and norms to see the one that stands before him, to see him as one who is created in the image of God, to see him, though he has been labeled all kinds of different things, is still worthy of a divine bear hug. Jesus has a right view of the person who stands before him. And so we, as followers of Jesus Christ, we understand that no matter whom we stand before, that that person is worthy of receiving our attention and our affection. If we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, 
then no matter what social situation we find ourselves in, then we realize that there's no such thing as somebody being in our way. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that it's actually um, a good thing when your plans are interrupted by people because it shows you that you are not as important as you think you are. So when my child wakes me up at 3 o'clock in the morning because his mouth hurts because he's teething, I should give glory unto Jesus Christ that I get to take up my cross and not sleep by helping him and rocking him back to sleep. But when someone's in my way, this is not a moment in which I'm inconvenienced. This is a moment where I get to walk in the footsteps of my Savior and say that you are, willing, you are worthy of my service, you're worthy of my affection, and you're worthy of my attention. There's no such thing as someone being in my way because every individual is worthy of a divine, a divine bear hug, if you will, a divine affection in my world. That's the first thing. But also, Jesus looks past. This man has been covered in labels unclean, sick, sinful, greedy, lowly, um, lower class, whatever the case, I mean, bad labels placed upon him. You can, can you just feel the awkwardness that he feels, the humiliation that he feels, that he's been brought into this room as a pawn of the Pharisees? You know, he just feels like, I don't belong here. And Jesus says, I see you. I don't see the labels placed upon you. I see you. See, Christians, we see people and not labels. We always see people and not labels. There's a lot of labels in our society, boxes that we put people in. To use a couple from the modern headlines, Muslim, homosexual, transgendered, there's labels, there's boxes that we put people in. But the beauty of following Jesus Christ is that we look past all those labels and we see an individual who's worthy of being served by us and loved by us and who's worthy of our attention and our affection that I don't see what the world has placed upon you. I see what God sees in you and that's his child. I see a full human being in you. We're not, we don't see people, we don't see labels, we see people. So how do we do that? How do we begin to see in that way? Well, the, the theologian that I just referenced, a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer of the 20th century, pastor, theologian, just a wonderful follower of Jesus. He talks about it in terms of recognizing my own sinfulness, having a sober perception of myself. This is what he says. Finally, in his book, uh, A Life Together, finally, one extreme thing must be said. To forego self-conceit and to associate with the lowly means in all soberness and without mincing the matter to consider oneself the greatest of sinners. This arouses all the resistance of the natural man, but also that of the self-confident Christian, If my sinfulness appears to me to be in any way smaller or less detestable in comparison with the sins of others, I am still not recognizing my sinfulness at all. My sin is of necessity the worst, the most grievous, the most reprehensible. Brotherly love will find any number of excuses for the sins of others. Only for my sin is there no apology whatsoever. Therefore, my sin is the worst. He who would serve his brother in the fellowship must sink all the way down to these depths of humility. How can I possibly serve another person in genuine humility if I seriously regard his sinfulness as worse than my own? Such service would be hypocritical. Never think that thou has made any progress till thou look upon thyself as inferior to all. What if we stopped seeing others as below us in the sin totem pole and everyone above us, that we begin to see ourselves, as Paul says, as the chiefest of sinners? There's no excuse for my sin. There's an excuse possibly for yours, but I make the choices that I make. And in light of that, 
knowing how sinful I am, I can be your servant because you're not more sinful than me. I am more sinful than you. you I can uh, serve you in that way, submit to you in that way. It begins with that sober perception of who the individual is before us as one loved by God and worthy of God's affection. That's the first point. Humility begins with the transformed visions of those around us. The second point is this. Humility is visible and is seen in my most basic interactions. Humility is visible and is seen in my most basic interactions. Look at, starting in verse 7, he says, When he noticed how the guests, when Jesus noticed how the guests picked the place of honor at the table, he told them this parable. So Jesus, so first of all, he heals the man, right? This big dramatic moment. You can imagine everybody's shocked. They're in silent awe of what's going on. But of course, you're going to have the meal, right? You're not going to not eat. Like, we could have an amazing service that goes on for hours here, but friends, we're going to go eat afterwards, right? We got to eat. And so everybody, the meal continues to go on, and Jesus then sits back in the corner, and Luke says when he noticed something. The word in the Greek isn't just like Jesus happened to come upon an idea. The word in the Greek means to pay careful attention to. It's the word used of the beggar in Acts chapter 3 when Peter and uh, John approach him. The beggar thinks he's going to receive money. It says that he fixates his attention on Peter and John. That fixated attention is what Jesus is doing in the room with these people. Now, I, I know that many of us have a lot of images for Jesus that we're comfortable with, right? Um, we have the image of like the crucified Jesus that suffers for our sins and makes us one in relationship with God. We're comfortable with that Jesus. We're comfortable with the Jesus that comes along and embraces us and whispers in our ear how meaningful and how significant we are to God. We're comfortable with the resurrected Jesus, the kind of awe-inspiring risen Lord who has all authority over heaven and earth and will come again to judge the living and the dead. That's the Jesus that we worship oftentimes in worship music. But this is a totally different Jesus. This is a Jesus that sits in the corner of the room and just pays careful attention to all those actions that we overlook even in ourselves. Those actions on a day-to-day basis that we just subconsciously do and don't even think about. This is the Jesus that doesn't come crashing into our living room with his presence, but just sits quietly in the corner of our living room and watches the way that we speak to our family, the way we speak to our spouse, the way we interact with our kids. This is the Jesus that sits in your office at work or watches you interact with your coworkers and just notices the turns of phrase that you use, the conversations that you have, the way that you talk to your subordinates or to your superiors, notices the people you associate with. This is the Jesus that sits in the back seat of your car when you're in traffic and you're about to lose your salvation in that moment. And he's just watching you drive, just seeing how you handle. This is the Jesus that sits in the room and like a good teacher just watches and sees how you behave in these moments because that's where true character is revealed. And he notices that people are vying for power at the dinner table. And then when he notices it, Jesus doesn't come with a stern finger and start rebuking bad, bad, bad you for wanting power. No, he's just going to tell a story because that's what Jesus does. He's so much smarter than we are. He says in verse 8, When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this man your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. Now, Jesus, listen, I've never been tempted to do this in my life. There's never been a moment where I've walked into a wedding reception and saw, you know what? Yeah, I'm seated at table four, but I think I'm going to go sit next to the bride because that's what she would want. Find nowhere like I find nowhere as well as I think I do. She'll invite me right over for tea and strumpets. That's from Dumb and Dumber. But um, <laughs> uh, 
But this is not a temptation in my, like, I've never thought, I'm going to go sit next to the groom. Like, I don't really know him, but he likes me in that way. This is an odd thing that Jesus, obviously, is a different cultural setting. In the ancient world, meals weren't just that one ate with the people that one was in kind of social standing with, but also that every seat at the table meant something about where you stood in relationship to the other people at the table. So to sit at the host's left was the most distinguished seat, and then every other seat kind of went downward from there. And so it was really important. Jesus is noticing the Pharisees are kind of mingling around certain chairs, like musical chairs, you know. They're like, I want, it, I want this seat. And you can see the way that they're talking to each other, the way that they're ignoring certain people in the room who are less than them, but really kind of sucking up to other people in the room who are more important than they are. Jesus, Jesus is noticing all these different interactions, and he's just watching very shrewdly. And he says, basically, in my world, all this stuff is ultimately, I guess I kind of see into it, I see its insecurity, I see the insecurity that characterizes the power play of your world. He says, I see in it how humiliating that world can be. Jesus is saying that that world is characterized ultimately by uh, just constant fear that my seat is going to be taken. So maybe we could put it this way. Jesus looks into our world. He says, you know what? Maybe we don't have a table, but he says, you know, I see the way that you constantly check social media to see how many likes, how many shares, how many comments you got on your post so that you feel more significant, more valued in your world. He goes, I see the number of pictures you take of yourself or of your family before you find the right one that makes you look attractive enough that people can think that I'm beautiful in this way. I see the phrases that you use to make sure that you carefully construct the post so that people see how happy that you are. He says, I see the sadness in your heart, when you see the happiness of other people and wonder if you can be that happy, if you can be that put together. He says, I see the way that you walk into a room and immediately the insecurity of your mind begins to compare yourself to other people in the room and you go, well, okay, well, I'm not as smart as that person, but I'm more talented than that person. And immediately, I'm not as experienced as she is, but I'm definitely wiser than than he is. And you begin to place yourself in the room and you say, these people are kind of below me, but these people are above me, it's subconscious, but Jesus says, I see it. I see the people that you ignore in conversation because they're not worth your time, but the people that you really engage in conversation because you think that that's the way to get a leg up in the world. He says, I see the insecurity that you're dealing with there. And Jesus says, can I invite you to a different mode of being in the world? A mode that doesn't find your value in comparing yourself to other people? A mode that doesn't find your value in should I, do I have this much power or that much power? Am I going to lose this power? Am I going to lose this influence? Am I going to have significance in this life? Can I invite you to the lowest seat at the table? Because that's where the master comes and says, friend, move to a better place. The master only calls people friend, not in the power play rat race world. The master calls people friend who are at the lowest seat in the table. And the good news is that the lowest seat of the table is always unoccupied. And Jesus is saying, you go to the lowest seat of the table, and that's where the master's attention is. He says, you don't find your worth in what seat you have at the table. You find your worth in the voice of the master who invited you to the table in the first place. And if you can find yourself in the low places, that's where God calls you 
friend. Jesus is essentially saying, if you want to hear the voice of God, then you need to press your ear up against the floorboard that's beneath you. That's where God's voice is found. If you want to experience God's presence, then you need to be on your face before him because it's being in the low places. That's where God's voice is found. You know, many of us in the room, I would believe, because of what life tells us, we want to hear from God even today. There are decisions we're trying to make. There are difficult relationships we're trying to navigate. There's career decisions. There's uh, all kinds of things. We just want to hear God's voice. And I wonder if we're having trouble hearing it because we're so caught up in this world, the power play. And God's saying, if you want to hear my voice, you need to get even lower still. Deny yourself further still. Become the servant of me and of all still because I flourish. I'm strongest here at the lowest seat of the table. Think throughout Scripture. When God decides to bring the Israelites out of Egypt, bring them out of the greatest empire of the known world, He doesn't raise up an Israelite general with this domineering presence. No, who does He find? He finds a fugitive shepherd with a stutter named Moses. God says, I'm going to call that one the low one to bring my people out. When God decides to bring a king over Israel, He chooses Saul first, a very tall and handsome man, the Bible tells us. He could see above everyone else, but his disobedience led to his downfall. So when God tries it again, he goes to one of the sons of Jesse. And when Samuel goes to Jesse's house, Samuel sees the seven sons that Jesse's brought. He sees Eliab first, and he's strong, and he's warrior-like, and he's shrewd. He looks political. He looks presidential. And Samuel says, it's that one, isn't it? And God says, no, that's not the one that I want. He goes through all seven brothers until he finally says, Jesse, do you not have any other boys? He goes, well, I got a small one who smells like sheep. And God says, I want that one. I want the low one. I want the one that's all the way at the bottom of the table. When God decides to bring his Messiah into the world, he doesn't find a noble queen, some noble Jewish family to bring his Messiah. Who does he find? An unwed pregnant mother. That's the one. I want to bring my Messiah screaming into the world. And when God himself is found in the flesh, he's not found on a throne. He's found next to the smelly cattle and the livestock with only the shepherds there to welcome him, to welcome his presence into the world. And when God displays his victory over the powers of evil, it's not with an army, but with an instrument of torture. It's among the lowly that God is most operative. You want to hear from God? It's time to get lower. It's time to go to the last seat of the table because that's where God's presence is found. Once I can say, I don't find my worth in where I'm at at the table, I find my worth in the master, then I'm free to be the servant of anybody that stands before me. And that's when God speaks most powerfully. Humility is visible and is seen even in the smallest things like my place at the table. Humility is mundane in that way. Now, the final observation, because i got to hurry, They've got a timer on me, y'all. It's scary. All right. The last point is that humility has everything to do with whom I am willing to befriend. Humility has everything to do with whom I am willing to befriend. Notice the last parable. So Jesus drops this bomb. Everyone who humbles himself, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. That's terrifying. So the humbling part will be exalted. That's cool. I'm down with that. But if I'm playing this game, Jesus is telling me that that's all going to be exploded by God's presence in this life or the life to come. That that's going to be cut down, right? So it's not just that he exalts those, but he brings these people down. That's terrifying. All right, just leave that with you. So um, 
Then Jesus said, this is verse 12, then Jesus said to his host, so Jesus is on a roll now. Like he's got a sermon going. I'm going to address everyone in the room. Now I'm going to turn to the host and talk to him specifically. He says, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they can't repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus says, when you throw a party, don't invite everybody over that you normally invite over to throw a party. Don't invite your friends. Invite the lowly. Now, of course, meals in the ancient world, we know that invitations were really important and reciprocity was really important in the meal relationship such that I only invite people over that I want to associate with one and whom I know that I will receive a return invite, if you will, to one of their parties. This is like natural social decorum. I I have my social intelligence, y'all, is minimal, okay? I'm not a very socially adept person. That's why God gave me my wonderful wife to guide me through all of these things. Like, it's constantly like, hey, you know, like we're trying to figure out my wife's, my uh, daughter's birthday party. She's four. It's like, hey, you know, we need to invite. She's like, you know, we need to invite so-and-so. I'm like, why? Well, because they invited us to their party. I'm like, we don't even know them. And we didn't even go to that party. She's like, yeah, but we got to invite them. I'm like, so I got to pay for their pizza now? Like, this is, like, I don't understand social exchange. Like, I don't hang out with these people. Why are they coming to our party? So, but she helps me understand, like, thank you notes are important. Like, so this is, it's, this, it's, it's that same kind of rhythm in the, that one only invites people whom one wants to be invited back. And Jesus says, not in my world. Your friends, you got plenty of time with your friends. I want you to befriend people that you aren't normally friends with. There's something about humility that's revealed in our relationships with other people. The kinds of friends that we have signal something about the people that we want to be and the people we associate with. You know, Jesus tells him to invite the poor, the the crippled, the lame. These are the bottom of society. Jesus is saying, I want you to invite them. When I think about the church, I think oftentimes that our, our means of helping the poor, it's good, but it's often like a drive-by shooting in some ways. It's like a, we just kind of, I come and I've got my goods and I drop them off and then I run away. <laughs> you know, I've got my supplies and then I give them and then I run away. And that's good and God is in that and God uses that and God is blessed by the fact that we give of our own, tithe, or of our own offerings and things to help the people in need. But Jesus says, I've called you to more than drive-by charity. I've called you to friendship. I've called you to associate with people, not just, not just to learn their names so that you can hand them a backpack or hand them a sandwich, but I've called you to learn, their, to learn what, what they're gifted at, to learn their names and their stories, to learn what their brokennesses are and their insecurities. I've called you not just to invite people over that you're friends with. I've called you to open up your home to everyone. John Newton, who is prominent uh, pastor in the 1700s, who was radically saved, in fact, on a boat. He was one that was associated with the slave trade for a long time. Eventually became a part of the abolitionist movement, longtime pastor, just a wonderful pastor in the, in the church of Jesus Christ. He talks about this passage in this way. Let your friends who are in good circumstances be plainly told that though you love them, prudence will not permit you to entertain them. No, not for a night. What? Shut my door against my friends? Yes, by all means, rather than against Christ, who says of the poor, Inasmuch as ye did it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye did it unto me. 
the poor need relief. One would almost think that the passage in Luke 14 was not considered as a part of God's Word. At least I believe there is no one passage so generally neglected by his own people. It's a problem when there's a passage in the Bible that were one to read our lives, one would never see this passage read. Who do we need to start opening up our homes to? It's not just about helping poor people, right? It is instead about who do I associate with? What do my friends say about my humility status? Does that make sense? What do, my, what do the relationships that I'm willing to invest in? See, because if, if we're constantly investing only in those relationships that affirm who we are or that bring us to higher places in life, we're not living according to the calling of Jesus. Do I have friendships with people in need? Not just help them, do I have friendships with them? Christ is calling us to new levels of humility. There's a growing movement now close with this. I'm one minute past time, but I've got the mic. So um, there's a growing movement now of Christians that are deciding to invest and spend their time in, quote, rougher neighborhoods, low-income neighborhoods. And there's a woman by the name of Sherry Massey who writes a blog about it for uh, a group called Red Letter Christians, people that are trying to take the words and commandments of Jesus seriously. She talks about when her and her husband, her husband became a teacher, sole income of the house, so they couldn't afford to live in the district that he taught in. So they moved into a, quote, rougher neighborhood, as they're often referred to. And there, she decided, they found this beautiful home, but on the very first Sunday in the home, the SWAT team was on their lawn in the neighborhood. She said, can we move, please? God, something else, please. But she felt called to stay there. So much so that she felt called to put her children, not in homeschooling or, or private schooling, but in the public school system there because she believed if God's called me to help this community, to be a part of this community, then we're going to partake of all aspects of it. Well, it was one of constant interchange of put the kids in, take the kids out, put the kids in, take the kids out. Teachers threatened with knives in one moment. The next moment, uh, her daughter's being bullied, etc., etc. But ultimately, she felt called continually to come back to put her children in the public school system. And this is what she says about being in that experience. Just a normal mom like you and I. This is what she says. If you ask my eldest, now a senior, if she likes her school, she'll tell you she loves it. She loves the diversity. She loves the opportunities for conversation she would, have, she would not have if everyone looked like her. She wouldn't have the empathy and compassion that she does if all the parental checkbooks looked the same. She wouldn't have the drive to make a difference in the world and in her community if she didn't know the community that she was in. We go to one of the lowest performing schools in the state, so no, we don't have the field trips or the technology, but we do have character. We have hardworking parents, we have children who are eager to walk in the door for the day to know that they will be loved and cherished. We have a staff who are brilliant and the most dedicated group of teachers I have ever met. For years I was afraid, I still am. I still jump every time there's a police chase or another shooting. I still try to control what I can and pretend that, that it will make it all go away, except it doesn't. I don't know what the answer is. I have many friends and family that have chosen another path for educating their children. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just wondering if we as Christians are supposed to be like Jesus. Did Jesus only surround himself with those like himself? And if we are raising children to be more like him, why are we keeping our children away from those we are called to serve? If Christians all leave, then how will change ever happen? Do we really care for the least of these, or is it just safer to keep others at a safe distance from the kingdoms of entitlement we are building? Hear me. 
I'm not saying that God's calling you to go move today and to find some low-income housing, etc. But I am saying Christ is calling us to radical commitment, to radical humility. What radical levels of humility is Christ calling you to today? Maybe it is moving into the rougher neighborhood. Maybe it's something else. But getting even lower still, but finding, not just low for the sake of low, but finding in the low place that the friendship of God flourishes and explodes in our lives in ways that we never dreamed was possible. Let's pray together. God, we are scandalized by the lowliness of your Son. We are offended almost by how much of a servant he became for our sake. We're challenged by your word. We're scared to go to low places in our careers, to go to low places in our families, to go to low places in this world. But God, give us the courage to find ourselves at the lowest seat at the table, that we may find that your friendship is there speaking in ways that we never thought possible. God, humble us if we are unwilling to humble ourselves. Forgive us for thinking that we could follow you without getting low with you. And God, may we find that in those low places that you're with us and that we will be rewarded because of it, whether in this life or in the age to come. But we do it because we admire you. So call us and take us to radical places of humility today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening today. If you would like more information about today's message or about our church, we invite you to visit us at cantonchurch.com or facebook.com slash cantonchurchga.com.